So a priest, a televangelist, and a rabbi walk into a bar. They sat around and discussed preaching. Who was the best preacher? Was it the Catholic priest? Was it the televangelist? Was it the rabbi? And then one of them said, you know what? Preaching to people is too easy. That's just simple. If we want to really see who's the best preacher, we need a, a better challenge. How about preaching to a bear? Preaching to a bear would be, would be challenging. That would settle this issue. And so they spit, shook hands, and set out. They had the next seven days, each one of them, to find a bear and preach to it. So out they went. The next week, they gathered together in the hospital to talk about how things went. The priest had a broken arm. Um, but overall, he was doing okay. And they said, well, how did tell us about your experience. He said, well, I went out and I found the bear and I began to preach to him, but he wasn't, he wasn't taking it very well. He charged me and bit my arm and I reached inside of my coat and I got some holy water and I sprinkled it on him in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And I prayed quickly. Holy Mary, Mother of God, blessed art thou among women. Blessed, are the fruit, blessed, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And that bear calmed down and became as tame as a lamb. And they're like, wow, that's impressive. Now the televangelist, he was in a wheelchair. Couldn't walk. And he, was, he had an IV hooked up to him. I said, well, what's your story? He said, well, you see, brothers, I went out into them woods. Yes, I said I went out into the woods, and I found a bear, the meanest, the baddest, the most sinful bear on the planet. And I stood there in the name of Jesus, and I said, bear, hear the word of the Lord. Get your offering ready. And I preached to him. And then he attacked me. But I wasn't going to give up. Because I know how to persevere in the Lord. So I tackled him. I tackled that bear. And we rolled down a hill. And then we rolled up another. And then we rolled down again. And then we rolled up and we got halfway. But that wasn't good enough. Because when you're only halfway up, you're neither up or down. And so down we rolled until we landed in a creek. And as we hit the water, I grabbed his head and I dunked him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I baptized that bear. Can I get a hallelujah? That bear became as tame as a lamb. Impressive. The rabbi was, he was in horrible shape. Bandages everywhere. Was laying in a hospital bed, hooked up to IVs, had a blood transfusion. Bad shape. 
said, Rabbi, what happened? How'd it go? He said, well, I've been sitting here thinking I probably shouldn't have let off with circumcision. (laughs) Sorry. hunting bear. Well, we better say a prayer, sister. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Religion is interesting. Um, It's funny that something that is um, supposed to, um, and, and really does, bring beauty and enlightenment and wisdom to the world is something that has also, human beings have also used it to bring unspeakable pain to the planet. It's like I, you know, it's a very beautiful song. Um, The song Imagine by John Lennon, you know it? Um, I'm not such a fan of the words, but I, you know, I can kind of see where he's coming from where he's trying to imagine a better world, and the things he wants to eliminate are religion, um, possessions, what else? What? Government, yeah. Because he, he sees, he's saying no heaven above us, no hell below us. And maybe if we, he's suggesting that if we gave up those ideas, we can make the world a better place, because so much pain and war has been done in the name of religion. I admit that, and it's a a great tragedy and something that's just, it's the weirdest thing. You know that Jews, Christians, and Muslims, when they pray, are addressing pretty much the same God. You know that? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three of these great world religions Hold to Abraham. They're called the Abrahamic faiths. Not a hammock like you lay in, but Abrahamic. It's interesting. Why why then are we so divided? Especially us three. Throughout the throughout the years, we have shed so much blood. Why why are there three? Why why are these three religions? Why aren't we one? saw somebody's Facebook page last week that I know, and under their religion section, they put, there's, a, there's one God, so there should just be one religion. Kind of makes sense. So we come to a day like Trinity Sunday, and I'm reminded of one of the things that separates us from one another. I mean, the reason why we're not one is complicated. It's, it's not a simple answer, and it's not easily solved. Um, and so I wouldn't try to boil it down and make it simple. Um, but one of the issues is doctrine. The way that we perceive God, this God, 
and our understanding of how this God has revealed himself to the world. Christians have a very unique uh, understanding of God. Extremely unique. Um, We believe that God has revealed himself as the Trinity. Now, is the word Trinity in the Bible? No. But we'll get to that in a minute. But this idea of the, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is, is a, a one major thing that makes Christianity distinct from other monotheistic religions. And you've got to ask in this day and age, is it worth it? There's a lot of people that say, well, we should just ditch doctrine. And many people today are saying, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. And I get where they're coming from a lot of times. Is it worth it to hold on to doctrines that divide us? I want to talk about that. Looking at the Trinity, I want to answer three questions this morning. What does it mean? Why would anyone believe that? And what does it matter? So what? Who cares? Let's pray for a moment. Lord, would you make yourself known in these next few moments? As I, as I fumble my way through one of the greatest mysteries that has ever been revealed to humanity, would you cause this, this time not just to give us information, but to do a work in our hearts. Show yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the Trinity mean? Well, it's, it's basically a mashup of a couple of words. Tri, meaning three, and unity, meaning one. Trinity. Um, that's basically where that, where that comes from. What's the definition of the Trinity? Here is the proper, correct definition of the Trinity. It's one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to say that one more time. One God eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This means that God exists. Now, now wade in with me, like strap on your thinking caps for just a moment. God, what we're saying in the doctrine of the Trinity is that God eternally exists as a divine community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's a differentiated community. What do I mean by that? Well, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Neither the Father nor the Son are the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. You tracking with me? The Father is a distinct person. The Son is a distinct person. The Spirit is a distinct person. And yet, these are one. One being, one being eternally existing as a divine differentiated community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is why we would say God is love. Because within this community, there is love. Love comes from the very being of who God is. You know, if, if you exist only to your, you're just all by yourself, you know, it's, it's really hard to love. Love really requires another. Does that make sense? 
Well-meaning people growing up, I heard preach to youth all the time and say, God created you because he needed somebody to love. And I get that because God does love us. But the fact is, it's just not true. Because God always existed in loving community. He chose humanity to bring them into what had already existed from all eternity. I want to make two distinctions. We are not saying that God, we're not saying that there's one God who has acted in three different ways in human history. So that in creation, he acted as the father. Um, In redemption, he acted as the son. And now he acts as the Holy Spirit. One God who changes hats, wears three different hats depending on his role. That's called modalism. That's not the Trinity. That would make it easier to understand, though, wouldn't it? And that's why uh, people erred that way um, over the centuries. We're not saying that. And we're not saying that there are three, di- three different gods who are united in their purpose. We're not saying there's three different gods. There's God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And they're distinct gods, but they just team up, you know, to save the world or whatever. That's, that's not what we're saying. That's called polytheism. Which was, and if I'm correct, that's also um, a Mormon conception. There's distinct gods that are united in purpose, not the Trinity. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there's one God, really, one being that eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God exists eternally as a divine community. Now, can you, can, you really, can, can you really get that? Can you understand that? No. I don't really understand that. But that is what the definition of the Trinity is. Now, quest, second question, why in the world would anybody believe that? That is just nuts. I mean, we, it's, it's, <laughs> why do we have to make things so hard, you know? Why would anybody want to believe such a crazy thing? You know, it's, it's obvious. In your experience, one being equals one person, right? When one being, when there's more than one person and one being, that's called a schizophrenic or a multiple personality person, right? One being equals one person. So why would we believe this about God? If there's one God, he should be one person. Why would anybody believe that this one God exists as three people, three persons, The honest answer is because Christians have, we don't know what else to do. God has revealed that about himself. I mean, there was, nobody is sitting around going, let's come up with the most difficult conception of God possible. And let's believe that. Over the years, Christians have tried to resolve this and make it easier. Um, uh, Mormons have done that. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses have done that. Um, let's let's try to get something that's a little that makes a little more sense. What Christians or what we what we are saying is that this is something that God has said about Himself through across across history. God has revealed Himself. He has chosen to 
act and show up within human history. And that as he's done that, we've come to know him. He's disclosed himself to us. He's made himself known. Deuteronomy 6.4 says uh, in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One, one God. This is the message that's pounded through um, what we understand as the Old Testament. Pounded through, one God. Jesus affirms the same thing. Jesus quoted um, that text uh, when he was on earth. Jesus said the exact same thing. He tied it to the greatest commandment. Somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. That's what Jesus said. Jesus agreed. So then we've got this interesting problem of Jesus then. You know, he shows up on the scene. As Jesus was getting ready to begin his public ministry, we can find this in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Um, Jesus was baptized. He went out to John, his cousin, out in the River Jordan. And he, was, he went there to be baptized because that's how he was going to be revealed to the world as the Savior, as the coming Messiah. When he was baptized, the heavens opened. And the Spirit descended on him. As a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, This is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So you have in his baptism, there's son, voice from heaven, and the spirit as a dove. Three showing up on the scene as distinct. You know, we could dismiss that and just say, Well, it was a special event. Jesus was a special prophet. You know, Jesus spoke for God. You know, the Holy Spirit was upon him because he had a mission from God. He was a prophet, an extraordinary prophet. But Jesus, Jesus uh, doesn't make things easier on us either. You know, if Jesus wasn't content just to allow himself to be thought of as a prophet. How do I know that? Well, basically, he claimed to be God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. A person that makes the kind of claims that Jesus made is either a liar, a lunatic, or a lo- or he is who he says he is. He's either a liar, a lunatic, you know. What do we say? What did, where did Jesus claim to be God? Well, he used divine titles for himself. Um, one of his favorite titles for himself is Son of Man. That sounds like he's saying, well, I'm just another one of you guys. I'm a human. Until you look at the context in Daniel chapter 7, there is a figure called the Son of Man who is worshipped by everyone, by all peoples. And he is given power and authority and dominion, and his kingdom has no end. When Jesus was being um, uh, interrogated, they asked him, tell us, are you the Son of the Blessed? He said, yeah. And you will see the Son of Man coming. And he describes a scene of, of judgment. Jesus also, one time they asked him, tell us, are you the Christ? And he used these Greek words. Ego imi. Ego imi. It means, I, I am. 
I, I am. When God revealed himself to the children of Israel through, Mo, or, um, uh, through Moses, but, but when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asked, what is your name? And God's answer, I am. That's my name. I am. The existing one. I am. Jesus chose to use those exact words when he was being interrogated about his identity. I am. And, and, and the, his interrogators knew what he was saying. Jesus used divine titles for himself. He, claims, he claimed to speak with divine authority. People were, at ama- were amazed at his teaching. Because, uh, as we see in Matthew 5, 6, 7, he taught as one having authority, not like a run-of-the-mill religious teacher. Jesus taught with authority that I could never teach with. And people were amazed. Jesus claimed to forgive people's sins. This was a big problem. Some of the, some of the Jewish guys that were standing there as Jesus did this said, What in the world is he doing? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus looked at him and said, well, Jesus looked at them and said, well, which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this uh, paralyzed guy, get up, take up your bed and walk? He said, but so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he looked at the crippled guy and said, get up, take up your mat and walk. That made a lot of people mad. <laughs> but what were they going to do? I mean, a crippled guy got up and walked, so they like, got a real dilemma on their hands. Jesus allowed people to worship him. All throughout the scriptures, angels don't even allow people to worship them. The servants of God don't don't allow people to bow down to them and worship them. They don't. And yet Jesus does. One time they were out on the waters in in a boat, he and his disciples, and Jesus calmed a storm with his words. And the disciples looked at him and were just shocked and amazed. And they said, truly you are the son of God. And they worshipped him, and he let them. In John 15, 5 and 6, we see that Jesus also, and he does this in many other places, he claims that one's destiny in life and for eternity somehow hinges on their relationship to him. That's an amazing statement. He tells his disciples, I am the true vine, you are the branches. If someone remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown out and withered. There's a warning to his disciples about staying connected to him. That's an amazing statement. Ultimately, Jesus was crucified. He was assassinated. In part, for these claims, for doing this. Uh, one time, uh, a crowd of, um, uh, a crowd of uh, his fellow Jews picked up stones to stone him, not in a Chichen Chong way. They were throwing rocks at him. They were going to throw rocks at him until he died. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which one of these do you want to stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any of these. 
but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. These people didn't, it, they weren't clueless about the kind of claims that Jesus was making. So now we got a real issue. Jesus is, is, is claiming to be God. And yet, clearly, at his baptism, a voice came from heaven. So God was there, and the spirit as a dove. What's going on? Well, maybe we could just dismiss Jesus' claims. Except for the resurrection. Jesus was crucified, and if he would have stayed dead, that would be it. Well, he got what he deserved, claiming to be God. That's crazy. And yet, on the third day after his crucifixion, he was raised from the dead. In Romans, in Romans 1.1, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians at Rome, said this. He said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the, script, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, when Jesus rose from the dead, that validated his claims. Apparently, he was telling the truth. And then we have this issue of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in John 15, 14, 15, 16, he's talking about he was going to ascend to heaven where he's ruling and reigning now, and he will come again. But he wouldn't leave his followers orphans. He said he would send, he would ask the Father, and the Father would send the Holy Spirit to us. The mysterious presence of God that is here in this room at, the mo- at this moment, in you, in I. And the Spirit is also referred to as God over and over in the Scriptures. The church, uh, along, uh, you know, after Jesus ascended and all that, the church really didn't know what to do with all this. Because it was clear there's only one God. But then there's Jesus and the Spirit. What in the world do we do with this? And so, and so, they thought about it, thought about it, and thought about it. Looked, read the scriptures, prayed about it. And they came to this conclusion that God has revealed himself. As a divine community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons. How can this be? Because one person equals, one being equals one person. One person, one being. That's the way we've always experienced life. But this might not be as unreasonable as you might first think. C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis, in, uh, in his work, Mere Christianity, talked about the Trinity. And he invited people to imagine what would happen. What happens? What kind of new possibilities come into existence when you move from two dimensions to three? You get what I'm saying? So he said, if there was only two dimensions, right, these kind of dimensions, here, here, and here, and here, If you wanted to draw a square, you would go. So if you wanted three squares, it'd be like, there's one, there's one, there's one. He said, but 
if you move to 3D in three dimensions, so not only can you go here, 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 but you can go here and here. When you move to three dimensions, when you move to three dimensions, what becomes possible? It's possible to have six squares that are united in a cube. But that's so, that's so abstract. So I wanted to get this down to where I can really understand it better. So Chris, would you throw up my first video? I want to take a look at the most awesome thing in the early 90s. Oh, do we have this? Yeah. Now, this is state-of-the-art, folks. Back in the day, Julie spent half her life mastering this. Yeah, you should have gone down the... Now, this was awesome. When this came out, this was a huge leap forward from the Atari 2600. Huge leap forward. But you notice how it's pretty much just 2D? He can go up, and he can go, he can go up and down, and he can go that way. And everything is pretty much 2D. Oh, yeah, run. Run. Let me guys play this. Yeah. This was so awesome. Came in a combo with Duck Hunt. So, will you hurry up and finish the level? I would have beat it by now. Yup, yup. Woo! Alright. So this is how video games were for a long time. You know, that's how video game developers made these. Um, pretty two-dimensional. And then someday, some genius in Japan, I'm guessing, thought... You know, what if Mario could go not only up and down, left and right, but what if he could go in? So, Chris, can you show the next? So, this is, what is this? This is your field. Super Mario Land 3D. What becomes possible when you move from 2D to 3D? I always wonder what was behind those boxes. And when you have an awesome bear or raccoon suit. Alright, that's enough. You see what I'm talking about? When you move from 2D to 3D, all kinds of things become possible. So we live our world in a pretty much in a three-dimensional world. That's how we experience life. How many dimensions do you think exist for God who invented dimensions? God invented this, this, that. Space itself was his idea. Crazy. God was like, I'm, I'm, one day he's like, I'm going to invent space. Never even been in, never even been heard of before. Space. What's space? He invented it. He invented these three dimensions. How many dimensions do you think exist for God? So is it possible? Is it is it slightly reasonable to think that God 
could be telling the truth about himself. I think so. So what does it matter? Who cares? That's an awesome idea about God. Does it really matter? Oftentimes for Christians, it doesn't, unfortunately. Doesn't make much of a difference. But it should. Why? Because the life of the Trinity reconciles us to God and one another. The life of the Trinity reconciles us to God and one another. What do I mean by that? Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in the image of God. In the image of God, we're created. What if part of what it means to be created in the image of God is this idea that we exist in community? That we were created to be in relationship to one another. That God creates male and female. He, he invented that too. I mean, that was like his idea. That's awesome. I used to love when I taught, when I was a youth pastor. Because every two years we'd do a sex series. And I would love getting up and telling them, God invented sex. That was his idea. He came up with that. How awesome is God? I mean, we should all stop and say thank you, unless you have the gift of celibacy. I mean, that in and of itself, what a crazy, awesome God. But he created us to be in community and that somehow, somehow, we become more than, when we're in community, we become more than we could ever be apart. Part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to be in community. God is reconciling the world to himself. Think about all the ways, all the things we invent to push other people away from us. All the distinctions we come up with to say, to keep others away. And God is at work in the world bringing us back to not only to himself, but to one another. God is reconciling us. That's the mission of Jesus. That's what's going on. What's it mean? It means that it's not just about my relationship with God. I cannot just love God and forget or dismiss or hate others. That's not possible. I cannot just love God on my own and, and not love others. One of the writers, I believe, James or John, one of the two in uh, one of the New Testament letters said, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. Because it's not possible. It's not possible. It's not just about us and our relationship with God. It's not just about us even as Christians loving God and forgetting the rest of the world. We can't love God ourselves and dismiss or ignore or not bother with Muslims or Jews or Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives 
or gays and lesbians and transgender. We can't just love God and, and not love illegal immigrants because they're here illegally. We can't just say we love God and not and, and continue to push other people away from us. That's not possible. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, they taught us this song. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And yet so many Christians, we sing that song, but we grow up not to live that out. Because we use the Bible and we use our religion to put walls up between us and other people so that we can just say, well, they don't believe the right things, so we don't have to love them. If they would believe the right things, then we would love them. If they would become like us, then we would love them. I think if we really understand the Trinity, and if we really believe that, that we would, that God would draw us into his mission. And his mission is reconciling people to himself and to one another. We would find ways to stop. We would find ways to stop holding everybody else at arm's, arm's length. We would find ways to listen to others, especially those who are not like us. Especially those who don't believe like us. We certainly wouldn't go to holy wars against them. We certainly wouldn't do things like have the Inquisition or burn witches at the stake or go gay bashing. We certainly wouldn't do that. Right? I think the Trinity matters. I think it's important. I think it's worth holding on to. But it's not enough that we just simply believe it. It's not enough just to simply believe it as an idea. We have to live it. Jesus said, if we only love those who love us, how are we better than common criminals? Of course, he said tax collectors, which were government-authorized extortionists at the time. If we only love those who are like us, how are we better than criminals? You know, the Sopranos do that. You know? How are we better? It's not by our doctrine that the world will know that we're Christ's disciples. It's by our love. It's by our love. The Trinity matters, but we have to live it. We have to live it out. We have to allow this triune God to draw us into his mission of putting this broken world back together in love. And as we do that, that's being authentically Christian. Stand with me. Thanks for hanging out in the heat. Let's pray. Lord. Help us not just to try to believe the right stuff. And that's important. Loving you with our mind as well as our heart, our soul, our strength is important. 
So help us to think well about you. Help us to humble our minds before you. But help us to live out this great faith. To truly live it out. Because if we would live it out, Lord, I think this world would see something different. They would experience something different. God, help us not to be the kind of people that use our religious doctrines to hate people or just simply to fail to love them. Help us to be followers of Jesus, not just in what we say or think, but in how we love. Let us love one another deeply and you deeply and those who aren't like us deeply. In Jesus' name.